Hi, Tony Hines here, and you're listening to the News Roundup. All things impacting global supply chains this week. Well, I was reminded this week that it's three years now since the United Kingdom left the European Union. And it's almost six years since the vote on Brexit was taken. And it's been a difficult time. There was a forecast this week about the United Kingdom being the only economy in the leading countries in the world. That's the G7 and I think amongst the top 20 of having a negative growth in the next year. In other words, I think it's about minus 0.6%. It's marginal, of course, and that could all change. But it's a reminder that reinforces the various aspects of Brexit and the pandemic. So, as I was saying, it's six years since Brexit vote, three years since the UK left. And many think that Brexit was a self-inflicted banana skin. It's one of those moments in history when a country decides to inflict pain on itself without good reason. And I say that in all seriousness. The underlying memories for Brexit decisions will be seen as misinformation, gross overstatements of claimed benefits, incompetence on behalf of the government handling the negotiations to leave the European Union, underlying prejudice that led to the vote in the first place, and ill-thought-through consequences of what it means or meant for the country and its economic future. And the thing is, it could have all been so very different. Today we learned it's costing the UK economy £100 billion a year. Exchange rates have consistently been about 16 to 20% lower since the UK left the European Union, and supply chain frictions have, of course, increased between the UK and its leading trading partners, all based in the EU. None of the pie in the sky were going to do these marvellous Australia deals, a deal with America. Let's get a tinge of reality into this. We could have still done those deals. We could have still had international deals, even though we were part of the EU. So that's all nonsense. It's also made trade with Northern Ireland have arrangements similar to those with the EU countries, which is adding unnecessary and expensive friction to supply chains for UK businesses and, of course, for people in Northern Ireland. And I was trying hard to think what's good about Brexit. It was claimed by Boris Johnson and other prominent Brexiters at the time that we'd regain sovereignty as if we ever lost it. We'd have the right to make our own laws as if we didn't, we're part of a democratic nation, we do that anyway, and we can negotiate those laws in the context of whatever alignments we sign up to. It would release vast sums of money paid to the EU, and that would be all returned to the National Health Service. Well, that didn't happen, did it? And other public services that we could invest in, and that didn't happen either. It would remove freedoms of labour mobility across Europe, which would mean we could keep foreign labour out. Well, only from the EU, of course. It's just a nonsense, and it would mean so much more. Unfortunately, most of the statements made by the Leave campaign were not true. And unfortunately, it hoodwinked people, and people made their decision on the basis of false information. Of course, if that happened anywhere else, there'd be a claim, wouldn't there, against the people making the promotion. The UK could already make its own laws. It had the right to remove undesirable people from the UK with the laws it had. And investments in many parts of the economy benefited under the EU arrangements. 
Since then, of course, many parts of the UK have lost funding and Westminster hasn't replaced it. And of course, there was the Education Erasmus Scheme, which was funded by the EU, giving students the opportunity to learn and travel across Europe and between participant organisations. And again, we lost that. There was going to be a promise of a, an alternative. But of course, it's not funded in the same way and it's not on the same scale. So what did we actually get? Well, we got a lot of headaches and it caused turmoil in the UK economy. All in all, we had a stronger currency. We had better trade arrangements, less supply friction. And of course, in some cases, better laws and human rights under EU law, better protections. So yes, it was a self-inflicted banana skin by David Cameron's Conservative government. Was the decision taken on fact-based reasoning? No. QED. On Tuesday, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said he saw Brexit as a great opportunity. Well, I think he's the only one that does, or certainly in the minority. He said it's a priority for his government to deliver on growth, employment and social mobility. And all those things, growth, employment and social mobility have been very badly damaged by Brexit. So is this getting back to where we were? Well, some called it a change of heart by even those that have voted for Brexit. They've got regret, Brexit regret. And, uh, well, a bit late now. It created a lot of turmoil in the economy and in the political administration of the country because there's been a lot of instability and a lot of divisiveness since Brexit. We had three Prime Ministers in the last year, and Northern Ireland Protocol still not resolved, months of negotiation, and can't see any more money for any further investment. A study by, by Bloomberg Economics this week said that uh, Brexit was costing the UK economy £100 billion a year, everything from business investment to the ability of companies to hire workers, all more difficult and it's reduced long-term productivity by about 4% compared to staying with the EU. And the IMF has downgraded UK growth forecasts this week to minus 0.6% this year. The government's determined to scrap EU laws, but uh, nobody knows which laws and what the reasons for wanting to scrap them is. It will certainly make uh, people feel less protected. It's almost political dogma. And it's not helping anybody, and it's certainly not helping supply chains. Supply chains have become sticky, longer, bound up in red tape, more costly. All kinds of exporters have to pay a lot more to export their goods to the people they trade with in Europe. If you send live animals to Europe, you've got to get these veterinary certificates and all that kind of stuff. And the paperwork is just more onerous. And it's not what business needs. Businesses need policies that create more certainty in the economy and they need policies that work for them. We need to move on from Brexit, put that behind us. It was a, an episode of misinformation, disinformation that persuaded right-thinking people to vote for something thinking they were going to be better off. But actually, it was the opposite. A moment of madness. The Brexit banana skin. Well. We need policies for growth. We can agree on that. We need policies for employment and we need to open up the economy again. We need to be open for business. We need to be open to encourage people to come and work in this country from whatever country. 
We don't need barriers in the way. We don't need friction. And we need an understanding that business has to find a way to get the stability and growth it needs. And only by doing that will we get investment. And that's the third part of the policy prescription. Energy cost is driving up inflation. Oil, gas and electricity are major costs, major concerns for business and consumers alike. It's obvious that as energy pushes up prices of fuel that drives industry, factory costs rise, retail costs rise, costs more to run the stores, run the warehouses and keep the transport and distribution moving along. So supply chain costs increase. And all these costs, increasing supply chain costs, find their way into final factory gate prices and, of course, retail prices that we all pay. Now, governments appear to have just two major policy instruments that they use to control inflation. And we've talked about these before. Fiscal policy, which is taxation mainly, and monetary policy, which is control of the money supply and the movement of interest rates. Governments cut taxes to increase demand and grow the economy, or they increase taxes to remove spending by reducing disposable incomes of consumers, which means a fall in demand, and they hope that that will eventually see prices fall. Interest rates rise, and they have a similar impact. An increase in interest rates, and consumers have less to spend on other goods and services, Lower interest rates, and the hope is it stimulates demand. Rising energy costs take money out of the economy by reducing the spending power of businesses and consumers. It also means there's less to spend on other goods and services. This said, energy costs reduce production as firms cut back, meaning supplies of goods and services reduce. And this drives up the price of those goods and services. Hence, it's inflationary. Now, if you read my blog this week, you'll find a couple of charts, a chart and a table about energy prices in the past year. And I focused on oil, gas and electric. Energy prices spiked after Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. And although the energy prices remain volatile, the trend currently is downwards. And energy prices for oil, gas and electricity are roughly around what they were prior to the invasion of Ukraine. And I've got a table there that shows this in more detail. So you'll see, for example, oil was $89 a barrel in February 2022, and today it's $85 a barrel. During the invasion, it was $131 a barrel. Per kilowatt hour, the prices for gas and electric have been as follows. Gas was $6.1, and today it's 5.7. After the invasion, it went to about $15. And electric was $17.15 a year ago, and it's 16.38 today. And after the invasion, that rose to about $35. Now, the government says that inflation is the main concern. For most consumers, it's cost of living. 
and for businesses, it's uncertainty and energy cost volatility, which creates the uncertainty. There is some consensus here about the major cause of inflation, which is energy cost. So why isn't that being tackled directly? What's the government doing to secure energy supplies to avoid future volatility? These are questions that every citizen should be asking. They're politicians. The politicians who are supposed to represent their interest. If you own shares in energy companies, you should be asking them what they're doing to reduce volatility in the market and how they're supporting customers, which after all will provide future dividends for shareholders. The market for energy needs to change. Monopolies and oligopolies always need regulation to ensure that they are not exploiting customers. Time to take a hard look at these energy markets and how they work. Privatisation of state monopolies in the United Kingdom was supposed to introduce competition in the market. And the question is, why didn't it? happening this week. Shell reported its biggest profits in 115 years. So if any proof was needed that energy companies are making hay while the sun shines, this is probably it. They turned out profits close to 40 billion, yeah that's it, 40 billion US dollars. And reportedly they've paid 1.2 billion in taxes in the EU and the United Kingdom. Those are windfall taxes on energy companies. So, while we all pay higher prices, the energy companies are certainly making big profits. Energy firms, as we've said, of course, have had record earnings since oil and gas prices jumped up after the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Prices are falling a little now, And the question is, why are we still paying higher prices? So that question remains. And there's a lot of pressure on government to actually ensure that energy companies pay more tax. Interestingly, Shell said it didn't expect to pay any UK tax this year because it's allowed to offset decommissioning cost and investments in UK projects against any of the profits. So it's likely that uh, that's going to cause a bit of a furore. However, this week it said it was due to pay $134 million in UK windfall tax for 2022 and did expect to pay more than $500 million in 2023. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed message coming across here that they've not paid any tax, don't expect to pay any tax, and yet we hear that, uh, of course, on Thursday they said they would. Shell only makes about 5% of its revenue from the UK. That's its revenue, not its profit. It is a headquartered company in the UK and it's expected to pay big dividends to shareholders. Of course, companies are caught in the political quagmire, which uh, was caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. BP reported profits, big profits back in November, you'll recall as well. And the White House has said that Exxon record profits are outrageous because they've been making big money too. They've made 45.2 billion pounds worth of profits or 50 
almost 56 billion US dollars in profit last year because of the surge in oil prices. Again, down to Russia's invasion in Ukraine. So these companies are making massive profits by accident. Not through any endeavour, but by accident, because the market prices shot up. Exxon did sue the European Union over the new windfall tax it's expected to pay. But I think energy companies have got to stand up and take some of the pressure here, because uh, they can't be too greedy. Energy companies are in fact making profits simply because everybody else is paying higher prices in the market. And that's through no activity by the energy companies or no clever things that they're doing. It's simply market forces. And unfortunately, sometimes we have to be protected against the monopolies and oligopolies that operate in a market. And so regulation is the only way to do that. And there's a case for that. But there also should be some acknowledgement by these big oil and gas companies that these are difficult times for everybody and they should want to actually help their customers so that they can stay with those businesses for the longer term. They should be more interested in the long term than the short term. And simply taking all the money out of your customers' pockets is not the way to go. There's some responsibility here. Remember those morality tales by Aesop? Well, the moral of this tale is this. Don't kill the goose that lays your golden egg. The Bank of England has raised interest rates by half a percent this week in the UK. So they now stand at 4%. And that's the highest interest rate that the bank has set for 14 years. And this will increase anyone that's borrowed money to invest in business or indeed consumers who've got loans or mortgages on property. The bank has also said that the UK will enter recession this year, but it will be shorter than previously thought. It expects the economy to fall slightly in 2023 as energy costs and other prices continue to ease. But it forecasts that the inflation rate will continue to slow and expects firms to hold off making redundancies. Various commentators have said that the workforce hasn't returned to its pre-pandemic size, unlike other major economies, which is one of the things affecting productivity in the UK. And there are fewer EU workers in key shortage areas. So Brexit again has damaged the economy. The bank reassessed post-Brexit goods trade data and concluded that the hit is notably more than suggested by official data. It believes that the expected fall in UK productivity after Brexit might have occurred more quickly than previously assumed. In addition, business investment, which is what's needed for growth, remains very subdued, according to the bank. And well below pre-referendum levels, it's been hit by Brexit and the pandemic. It might take the UK until 2026 to get back to somewhere near normality. The bank also said it expected inflation to fall sharply and settle at around 3% next year. The UK is not the only central bank to be raising interest rates. The US rate rose again to the benchmark level between 45 and 4.75% on Wednesday, and that's the highest since 2007. And interest rates in the Eurozone have also been increasing. The European Central Bank also raised its interest rates this week by half a percent on Thursday. They now stand at 2.5%. That's for the 20 countries in Europe 
linked to the euro. The IMF published its World Economic Outlook earlier this week, and it was quite interesting because uh, China and India were suggested as the highest growth, 6.1% for India, and China at 5.2%. And then you look at Russia, which is also said to be growing at 0.3%, and the United Kingdom is the one that stands out at minus 0.6%. But that seems at odds, that forecast, with uh, the Bank of England's summing up today. So we'll have to see who's right. The United States is forecast to grow at 1.4%, the Eurozone 0.7%, and then there's a breakdown. Germany is forecast only at 0.1%, France 0.7%, Italy 0.6%, Spain 1.1%, Japan 1.8%, then we've got the United Kingdom, as I said, with a only negative figure, and Canada at 1.5%. And then China and India lead the way in Asia. Even Latin American countries such as Brazil and Mexico have forecasts from the IMF of 1.2 and 1.7 respectively. Saudi Arabia's forecast to grow at 2.6%, South Africa 1.2. And then Sub-Saharan Africa 3.8, Nigeria 3.2. And that's it for the major economies that the International Monetary Fund looked at. The forecast shows the United Kingdom returning to growth close to 1% in 2024. But I expect it to be sooner than that, given what the Bank of England said today. It's been a big week in the economic world this week, with all those bank rate changes and, of course, the three-year anniversary of Brexit occurring officially, and, of course, the inflation caused by rising energy costs, which really needs to be more of a focus, I think, in the minds of policymakers when they're trying to get inflation down. These blunt instruments of interest rate rises and, of course, taxation policy need to be sharpened and there needs to be regulatory frameworks to ensure that uh, prices in the energy markets are fair and that those markets actually work effectively not just for the benefits of suppliers, not just for the benefits of shareholders, but to the benefit of consumers, businesses and households purchasing energy supplies. Well, that's it for this week, and I hope you've enjoyed the episode covering the economics, setting the scene. It's timely, this particular news round this week, because we've just released the supply chain pest. That was all about the political, economic social and technological change impacting global supply chains. And that's what we've been talking about today in our news roundup. There are some links to my blog, the Tony Hines blog, which you may want to just take a look at. You'll find the links in the notes, in the show notes, because I have an article there on energy costs. And the next article coming up is about banana supply chains. So you might just want to have a look at that. Next week, we'll return to a more normal news roundup of all things happening in supply chains, and we can focus down on those. So for now, I'm Tony Hines, I'm signing off, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.
The Chain Reaction Podcast is written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains, and we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon, all things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.